This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. And I, I knew that they were leaving to go be a light into the Hollywood world for Jesus Christ. And I saw their popularity gaining over time. They were one of the first people on YouTube. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. Got a great discussion to bring you today with Shelby Abbott. We're going to be talking about doubt and a new book he's written on the subject called Doubtless Because Faith is Hard. And so Shelby, it's so great to have you on the show. We've talked on the phone a bit before, uh, but it's great to have you on to talk about this concept of doubt. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, and it's good to see you face-to-face. We've only emailed and talked on the phone, so this is fun. Yeah, we were connected by a mutual friend uh, around the time of the Rhett and Link Link deconstruction story. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today because you bring a unique perspective to that, having known them and worked with them in the past. You even wrote a really popular article uh, commenting on their deconstruction stories. And so we'll get into a little bit of that today too, because I actually received quite a few emails from people who had been rattled, uh, mature Christians even, who had been really rattled by those story. So we're going to get your perspective on that a little bit, but uh, we're here to talk about your new book that's coming out very soon. And so before we get into the meat of what is doubt, how does that look biblically, how does that play out in the life of the average Christian, how can we approach doubt, we're going to talk about all those questions today. But let's start with you uh, and how you came to faith. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Um, What's your story? I grew up nominally Christian. My folks got divorced when I was three, and then my mom remarried my dad uh, when I was six. And when that happened, uh, he was uh, in the military, in the Air Force, and so we started moving almost immediately. So my experience with church in general was uh, military-based chapels, basically. Uh There was most of the time it was two services, the Catholic service and the Protestant service. And so we went to mostly Protestant uh, services. And uh, I would, I would have said that I believed in God. I would have said that even that I was a Christian, that I believed these things. But um, it wasn't until my freshman year of college, when I really started to dive into the Bible a lot more and have the gospel explained to me in a way where I was like, I'm not sure I've ever actually made the decision to receive Christ into my life, to ask him to come into my life, to be my savior and my Lord. Like, Mm. what does that look like? And so January of my freshman year was when I actually um, 
prayed and asked the Lord to come into my life. And then everything changed from there. I was involved uh, as a student with Crew, the ministry of Crew mm-hmm. at Virginia Tech. And then, um, you know, I grew tons in three and a half years, spiritually just grew tons. And when I uh, graduated from college, I, it was a no-brainer for me to come on staff with Crew. I wanted to pour back into the ministry that had poured so much into me. So I uh, graduated, raised support for about eight months or so, and then uh, reported to my first assignment at James Madison University in Virginia, and I was there for seven years. Oh. Uh, I've done a number of things since then, but yeah, really the, the kind of heart of my my relationship with God began freshman year of college, so I'm 19 years old. Very cool. So what was it that inspired you to write a book on doubt, which, by the way, is a very good and thoughtful book. Uh, I've had the honor of being able to read it early, and I have offered a a joyfully offered an endorsement. It was easy to endorse this book because it's so thoughtful. And I think it's really going to help a lot of people as we walk through almost what could be described as a culture of doubt. So what was it that inspired you to write this book in the first place? Well, I I work with students um, every summer on a summer mission that my wife and I run in Ocean City, Maryland. And I had uh, about three years ago, a couple of students come to me at the beginning of the summer mission, and uh, they went to a secular university in Pittsburgh, and uh, they wanted to meet with me. And I was like, I have no idea what this is about, because it usually doesn't happen where I meet students one-on-one at the beginning of the summer, usually happens near the end. And they said, Mm. we've been struggling with having some serious doubts. Um, It turns out they had taken a religion class at their university and and their professor had poked a bunch of holes in Christianity. Mm. And then all of a sudden that sent them kind of spiraling. And so that day, mostly what I did was listen and not try to like be the theologian and answer a bunch of questions to give them, uh, you know, correct answers for everything. I just listened. And then I created kind of a resource list for them to go and do the research and and dive into stuff. But I noticed that there was this kind of a little bit of this like shame in feeling that they were, they were doubting. I, mm. I complimented them for being so bold in wanting to talk to me about it. They felt like I can't really talk about this with other people. Cause then what if they think that I'm not really a Christian or they just kind of give me these strong answers and they don't really address what I need to know. So that was happening right along about the same time that my brother-in-law, uh, my wife's youngest brother was on a deconstruction journey of his own as well. And, um, listening to him question things. He grew up in a very solid Christian home and um, had confessed to me that, you know, he'd done all these wonderful things. He had gone on a summer mission with crew Mm. and he had led the evangelism team. So he was sharing his faith all the time. I mean, he did uh, and said everything that sounded correct when it came to Christianity. But then uh, as he graduated from college and kind of moved into the the secular world, he started spending a lot less time with Christians, a lot more time with uh, non-believers. He started dating someone who didn't uh, believe in Christ, and that was kind of the 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 wheel started to spin and kind of come off for him to the point where he like wrote this kind of miniature manifesto and sent it to a few people that was like, I am not a Christian mm. anymore. And so I was like, how can I write something that would be for my brother-in-law that he would maybe read and not be an apologetics book per se, because there's hundreds of them out there that are way better than anything I could think of, but like deal with the social aspect of doubt, what it feels like and how you can doubt well Mm. in the process of dealing with 
this kind of culture that is deconstructing, that is doubting all the time, it's kind of popular to do so. So yeah, that was kind of the genesis of it. Students combined with personal like family stuff. Yeah. Well, I know growing up in the church, uh, nobody ever explicitly told me that you should never doubt or that that's a, you know, some kind of an unforgivable sin or even that doubt, you know, I think I just assumed that if I was doubting, that means I had a really weak or, or bad faith, somehow that those were opposites, that doubt and faith were polar opposites. And if I was going to be a strong Christian, if I was going to be really tight with the Lord, I wouldn't even entertain doubts. And so one thing I think we see consistently in some of these deconstruction stories, particularly in the Rhett and Link one, and actually in others that I've read and that I've heard, there was this idea that they stuffed the doubts down, you know, just kind Mm -hmm. of put a Band-Aid on it, or they just stuffed it down and ignored it for a while. I think I heard John Steingart, even the most recent one that I've heard about, say something along those lines. And one of the things I think that you do so well in your book is you you address that head-on for the Christian. In fact, your first chapter is is saying that doubt is biblical and it's common. And so I want to ask you a little bit about what you mean by that. If you'll just unpack that idea, um, is faith the opposite of doubt? And if not, what is doubt and and how can we approach it biblically? Yeah, I, I was once I started doing the research for this, it was I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go start straight with a with scripture. And I found very quickly that the Psalms are the place that that just really wrestle in a very honest, public, and sometimes embarrassing way with doubt of not trusting God, uh, his ability to get things done, his presence in people's lives. Um, one uh, writer put it, uh, I forget who it is, but it's in my book, um, of that the Psalms give us permission to beat on God's chest. Mm. And I really love that imagery of what it felt like to just be raw and honest with God. And so I see these examples all over the book of Psalms. And then, um, you know, I started to look into New Testament examples as well and kind of uh, examine what was actually going on with people who are closest to Jesus. Mm. And these are the disciples who are spending all of their time with him over the course of three years. They're seeing him do these miraculous things. And uh, they're still doubting. They're still uh, bringing those things up. Even at the ascension uh, in Matthew chapter 28, that the disciples are with him and they've seen his resurrection. Yeah. He's present with them. And it said, there's this one little line in that part right there at the end that says, but some doubted. And then he like rose up into the sky. And I'm like, really? These guys, like these guys doubted. What does that say about me? Like I, I can do that. I can do that. And it's going to be okay. And Jesus is not going to drop kick me uh, into another realm if I just actually am honest with him about what's going on in my life. The the prime example that I ended up using was not ironically doubting Thomas. I talk about him later, but I thought John the Baptist was just a great example of someone who near the end of his life doubted so he's just as John the Baptist, the precursor to the Messiah, the, the the guy who leapt in his mother's womb when he was near Jesus, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the beginning. Yeah. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes us away the sin of the world. He baptizes Jesus. The sky literally opens up and he hears an audible voice from God that says, this is my son. And yet at the end of his life, he sends a, he's in prison and he sends a couple of his guys to Jesus and says, Ask him if he's the one or if we should expect another. And I'm like, really? Again, it's like, really, John the Baptist? You 
you heard the audible voice of God and you're still doubting. Okay, if anything, the scripture gives us permission to Mm. wrestle with doubt uh, in in a very forward, honest, clear way that might be offensive to some Christians, but God is not offended at all by our doubts. And so if that's the reality of scripture, um, let's lean into our relationship with God in the process of doubting instead of slowly backing away in, in a cloud of shame or kind of embarrassment about what's going on. If you don't believe me, open your Bible and examine it through the lens of, let me let me try to pick out doubt here. Let me see it. And it's just all over the place. Yeah. I really have found that to be true as well. And one thing that's so intriguing to me about that John the Baptist example is it really caused me to think deeply about the nature and how common doubt actually is. Because you know, you talk to atheists and you say, what would it take for you to believe? Like, What kind of evidence, what kind of line of evidence would be required for you to say, okay, God exists? And once in a while, an atheist will say something along the lines, well, the sky would have to open up and I'd have to hear God actually literally say audibly, like, I am real. And, and John the Baptist actually had that. And he still went through doubts. And what's so beautiful about that story too, is when he sends his disciples to Jesus, Jesus doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, oh, John, you shouldn't doubt, you know, just read your, your scriptures and you'll be fine. But Jesus actually offered him evidence in exchange for that doubt. And he treated him very tenderly. And that, that was a story that brought me so much comfort as, as I was going through my own process of doubt. And I think that's such an important thing for people to hear. Because like you mentioned, this is a guy that was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, the first mm-hmm. prophet after 400 years of silence. I mean, there's never, I don't think you could come up with somebody in history that had maybe Moses, you know, that had more access right. to God and to evidence of God as a you know personal right there than John the Baptist, and yet he still doubted. And that's incredibly comforting. Uh, in your book, you talk about a doubt scenario that I want to bring up here because I think <laughs> a lot of people are going to relate to this. Mm. So you say, let me break down a doubt-related scenario uh, that's common in your mind and in your heart a few times in the past, and I certainly related with this as well. So number one, an article, blog, or podcast, or video posted online makes a strong argument opposing the validity of Christianity. And I could even add, for my context and my listeners, maybe you read a progressive Christian blog that argues against the atonement or the physical resurrection of Jesus, or maybe argues against the authority of the Bible or somehow wants to demote the Bible. So you read that online or you hear that or you watch that and uh, you take it in. And then the third thing is you can't retort in a way uh, that can act as a logical counter to what you've seen or heard because you don't know enough or you haven't studied enough as the person who posted. Oh my gosh, so relate with that. Yes. Then you begin to wonder if the argument they've posted can be answered in a satisfying way. You know, I don't have the answer, so maybe nobody does. And the fifth thing is there's a tremor in the foundation of my Christian belief, and I begin to assume this argument against Christianity might be legitimate. And number six, if this argument is accurate, then maybe others against my faith are correct as well. Number seven, I've based my belief system on something that might be false. I'm doubting the authenticity of Christianity. 
And number eight, well, if Christianity isn't true, maybe the Bible isn't either. Maybe God doesn't exist. And number nine, the world and everything in it explodes. <laughs> and I think this is a scenario that can happen on a micro level or a macro level, even many, many, many times. And so um, you, you go on to talk about how important this progression is because things start off kind of normal. You know, you're just reading something. It sort of irritates you with a question. Um, and so then you go into how to feed, you know, what you feed. If you feed your yeah. faith or you feed your doubts. Expound on that a little bit in response to somebody maybe going through a scenario like this. Yeah. I, uh, obviously they're not probably that intentionally thoughtful. It was like, oh, these are the nine steps that right. I go through when that <laughs> process happens. But I, I really wanted to be candid about it because, uh, truthfully, there's this, there's this kind of, um, process that people go through it's it seems to be a common one as they are hit with this onslaught of stuff online content that that helps them to kind of scratch their heads and wonder whether or not the truth that they've believed for so long is actually true and like you said we hear this in the deconstruction stories all the time but um one of the things that i noticed that my brother-in-law did um was that he he decided to feed his doubts and when he fed his doubts, his faith began to starve. One of the intentional things that I wanted to make sure that people did, in, if, if you do the opposite, if you, if you feed your faith, your doubts will starve. So I've noticed that there's this kind of common um, desire to, uh, there's this attraction to doubt because it kind mm. of feels like, you're messing with things that maybe you shouldn't, and that's, uh, uh, or or you feel like if I don't actually get to the bottom of this, I'll never find out what's really real. And so you start to research, and there's tons of research that's out there that could uh, shake your faith, and that tremor could turn into an earthquake. And you you've you found tons of evidence. So you, what you're doing in that process is you're obsessing over your doubts, you're feeding your doubts, and mm. in the process, your faith is starving. And so, what if we took a different approach and we decided to dive in? Uh, in the opposite direction, dive into scripture, of course, but then dive into questions that you're asking and search for good, solid answers. Because one of the things that I found is all the questions that you think are new right now, especially as a college student that mm -hmm. your professor is throwing out there and going, have you ever considered this? Mm -hmm. um, those questions have been asked for thousands of years. Um, there is nothing new under the sun. And if you're willing to dive in and do the research, if you're willing to put in the hard work of feeding your faith, you'll begin to see uh, the plausibility and uh, the strength of the Christian argument and how uh, – you can actually learn how to self-feed as well and become a stronger believer in Christ and watch your doubts shrink in the process. So yeah. I'm a negative person. I'm a, I'm a pessimist by nature. And so that scenario for me is that, I, that you just mentioned is, is a common one, not just for like faith, but for like anything bad that's going to happen. And uh, I've had to really kind of retrain myself in how to appropriately process different issues in life. And a number of people have been helpful with that, including my wife and friends and mentors and stuff like that. But I was like, what if I took this and, and spun it on his head and ha ha had people understand that, why don't you take the opposite approach and you watch God show up? Mm. Well, that's good stuff. I want to transition a bit into the Rhett and Link deconstruction story. I've Sure written about that. You've written about that. I've actually already done a podcast on it too, but I want to ask you about your unique perspective because you were really helpful in 
helping shape my thinking on it. Because I'll just be honest, when I, I didn't want to listen to it, I never want to, you know, I never, I, and I think, right. I don't know what to think about that, but uh, I had youth pastors that I know text me, hey, have you, have you watched this yet? And I had never heard of Rhett and Link. I guess I'm an old lady. I just didn't know. I didn't know that they were, they were so popular. And, but these youth pastors were saying, this is legitimately shaking up my youth group. All these yeah. kids that grew up watching these guys. And so I actually did like a whole day of research on them, which is honestly the most fun research I've ever done. You know, yeah, watching hot dog eating contests and all that thing for a whole day was was super fun. They're, they're hilarious. Obviously, easy to see why they have such a huge following. And, and I've written about this before too, but it's especially concerning to me considering my kids are 11 and, well, almost 12 and 9. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that they don't even watch TV. They, you, when I was a kid, I would watch a TV show, get a new episode once a week, lots of different characters. I've been, you know, I've pondered this so much. So the, so the influence that those people would have in my life were not just removed by time, you know, not getting that new episode every week, but distance of them playing a character. So not only are they hidden, they're hidden behind that time, but hidden behind the layer of playing a character. There are other, lots of other characters involved that might get focused on over this one. And, and it's very much presented as not reality. This is a right. sitcom or this is a drama, you know, whatever it was that I would be watching. And I knew all those categories. So the actual person was hidden behind several layers of, I don't know what you would want to call it, just, just buffer between me and, and what they might think. So if somebody would have said they didn't believe in God, it probably wouldn't have rattled me that much because I, I, there was so much buffer in between us. But like I said, my kids, they don't even watch TV shows anymore. And even if they did, they would probably watch them on Netflix or some kind of a platform where they don't have to wait the week and they can binge it and, and all of that. But they primarily watch their favorite YouTube channels. And I have mm -hmm. been diligent, my husband and I have been diligent to make sure that the channels that they watch aren't going to indoctrinate them with anything that's anti-Christian. We teach them discernment and we teach them to reason through some of the, the ideas. But ultimately, when they're watching YouTube, it's usually one person that they're deeply connected with. This person posts, in some cases, every single day, and they're not playing a character. So all of those layers of buffering between me and, say, whoever I would be watching, they have none of that. And so I see them, uh, and we talk about it, but it's, it's scary because you do see them start to emulate and imitate them and want to be like them. And so all these kids who grew up with Rhett and Link, I can imagine how absolutely rattling this deconstruction story was, because yeah. even as I'm watching it, as an apologist, every everything that he's saying, I'm like, oh yeah, but, and then he'd say, now I know you're going to say, and then I was like, yeah. that is what I was going to say, and then it you know, goes on. Yeah. So I want to ask you, what were you thinking? Did you have any sort of um, warning that this was going to happen, or did you find out with everybody else, and what was your response when you were watching it? Um, I was not super surprised. Um, they were, um, so my connection with them, we never like worked long periods of time together. I was the MC of this, uh, conference down in Panama city beach, Florida, that crew used to do every year called big break. And so I was emceeing that conference on a regular, uh, basis. And it's a one week conference that's repeated three or four times, depending on what, what college you are, you travel down 
go to the conference and you share your faith out on the beach. Mm. And so I would be there for like a, sometimes a month at a time emceeing this conference. It's very ingrained into my life. Well, one year, um, Rhett and Link were on staff in, in North Carolina. They were uh, kind of recruited or hired to come down to Big Break, and they were doing this thing called an entertaining seminar. So it was evangelism, motivation, and inspiration through the medium of comedy, mm. which when I saw them do that, I was like, actually, I had that idea too. And so we, we really connected. I emceed the conference. They did their seminar. And then the last week, they were going to emcee the, the conference down there, and, so, and I was going home. So that we hit it off really, really well. We were very similar personality-wise. Both really obviously loved entertaining and humor and communication and the uniqueness of what that looks like as a staff member with crew. And um, we had decided at the end of that time to kind of work together the next year at the Big Break Conference where we they would do evangelism training and I would MC, but we'd integrate and overlap and do things together like bits and and uh, sketches and uh, even video and that kind of stuff. And so that was the plan. But not too long after that, they had decided to leave staff with crew and go into the entertainment business. And so we kept in touch for a, a little while. I was, I was closer with Link than I was with Rhett. And um, I wish them well, and I I knew that they were leaving to go be a light into the Hollywood world for Jesus Christ. And I saw their popularity gaining over time. They were one of the first people on YouTube, um, mm. and they doubled down. They poured into that, and they were right. It was one of those investments that they decided to 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 put all their chips on, and it paid off big. Um, I remember sitting in the movie theater. Uh, before the, the trailers would start and they do an advertisement for YouTube Red and Red and Link were like the guys on this like huge mammoth screen. I'm like, man, it's so exciting yeah. for them. They made it. Yeah. I hope that they're being a light for Jesus. I know that they never talked about that publicly, but um, a couple of things on social media started to come out that they would that they would tweet about or post about. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if, nah, Nah, I wonder if nah, I'll just kind of and then the and then the the podcast came out and I was heartbroken by it. Uh, a friend of mine said you should really listen to them. I was like, I'm going to. I feel like I need to. So I did listen to all four of them. And um I just decided at that time, I was like, you know what? I, I knew them before they were a big deal. Uh we don't keep in touch at all anymore. It's not like they're my friends or anything like that now. Um but I feel like I since I kind of represent the entertainment aspect of crew here and so many students have seen me and it's, it's kind of our target audience is the same group of people. Uh, I feel like I, I need to respond. So I wrote that article. Um, I didn't expect it to go viral. I've never gone viral before. It's actually, turns out it's not as all not it's cracked up awesome. to be. Yeah. It is not awesome, is it? <laughs> no. Uh, people are really mean. They're <laughs> really mean. Yeah. And I, and I questioned too, I was like, you know, Rhett Link's audience, is, they're supposed to be spreading joy and laughter and happiness and their fans are super, super, super angry. Yeah. Um, so I knew that I would rub people the wrong way who did not believe, but I didn't know that I would rub people the wrong way who did believe, but I was just standing up for Jesus in it and uh, pointing out some red flags and what they had mentioned and um, not necessarily trying to poke holes. And I never even thought that Rhett and Link would read it. I'm 99.9% .9 sure that they did read it and felt hurt by it. And then they kind of responded in roundabout ways to me. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting uh, 
process. And I found that you, you're exactly right that they're, they, these layers that used to be between us and celebrity have been stripped away, not only by people on YouTube who do post uh, five, six, seven days a week, but they're also on social media. So you can, you can see what they're thinking and feeling mm-hmm. even when they're not posting. And that yeah. uniqueness, uh, it, it, throw, it threw people for a loop. A lot of students got in touch with me. A lot of staff members got in touch with me and asked me what I thought. And I was just like, man, this is crazy. So that's why I ended up writing the article that I did. It got a lot of backlash from people who don't believe and and some Christians as well. But as soon as the pandemic hit and everybody went into quarantine, uh, we were stuck at home, obviously. Um, About a week and a half after I posted the article, this guy comes walking down my street. I live on a cul-de-sac. So you see all the people who live on this street. If you're walking down, like we know who you are. I didn't know who this person was. He's walking down the street and uh, he's looking at me. I'm in the front yard with my wife and kids and we're just playing. He's looking at me and then he crosses the street to my side of the road and starts to like walk up into my yard. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he goes, excuse me, are you, are you Shelby? And I was like, yeah, I am. He goes, Hey, um, I live in the cul-de-sac over there across the street um, I just wanted to say thank you for writing the oh. article about Rhett and Link. I was like, really? And he goes, wow. yeah, my son's in high school. And when the, the podcast came out, he, he really got thrown for a loop. And, and, and I, as his father tried to help, but I didn't know how to. And, uh, we got forwarded your article and my son read it and I would love to get together and have dinner after the pandemic clears and uh, you could talk more with him then. But just thank you so much for writing the article. And I was like, this is why I did it. <laughs> Makes it all worth year it. Old boy yeah. was thrown for a loop. And I was like, yeah. thank you, Jesus. You did yeah. that. You yeah. didn't have to tell me that you did that, but you did that. And that's uh, that's why I was like, yeah, this is something that I needed to do. That's so cool. So what were some of the red flags you talk about in your article um, and I, I, I want to hone in specifically on one that I had, uh, you know, Rhett was obviously just such an intelligent person, both of them, but Rhett, I think there, Rhett's yeah. in particular, his deconstruction video was probably the most damaging to the most people's faith. And so, you know, he, he seemed to be sort of the leader and he's the one who did the the heavy lifting with the arguments and reading all the books and, or at least that's the way it appeared. And so he, his case that he made really against Christianity in his deconstruction video was really, uh, I I know, persuasive for so many people. And the whole time uh, there, and I want to ask you some of your red flags too, but the the thing that jumped out the most to me as I was listening, because I was listening so, so, so carefully to understand what he thought Christianity was in the first place. That's always, when I'm listening to these deconstruction stories, that's my first thing I'm looking for. What are you leaving? What are you walking away from? What are you deconstructing? Because that's the most relevant question. And he made such a persuasive case because he even said, so some of you are going to say, I was never a Christian in the first place. Well, I was. Jesus was real to me. But what was so interesting to me in as he went on is, is I never did hear him, and I didn't listen to all four. I listened to the final two, which were their actual deconstruction stories, not not the the sort of precursor. So they may have done that earlier. But in what I watched and listened to, what I never heard was, yes, I heard him say Jesus was real to me. Uh, I was all in with my faith or, you know, things like that. But I never heard him say I, you know, there was a moment in my life when I was so broken over my sin and I called upon Jesus to be my savior. And it made me wonder how many 
uh, Christians grow up in the church, but never really, kind of like you were talking about at 19, you realize you never really made Jesus Lord and Savior. And I didn't, I didn't hear those words. In fact, what was sort of ironic to me is he was talking about how real Jesus was. And then later he basically said Jesus wasn't real or and that switches it. And yeah. he switches it. And so if it, he was, he was like, I was, I talked with Jesus, but then later, if, if that was all false, then you really weren't talking to Jesus. So he kind of refuted himself later, yeah. um, which was, you know, he didn't leave very many holes. So I was looking for the ones he was going right. to leave. Um, but I wonder what were some of the red flags that you picked up when you were reading that maybe you, uh, extrapolated on in your article. Yeah. Um, one that one my first one was basically that Rhett and Link weren't necessarily uh, deconstructing Christianity, the Christian faith, but the Christian subculture. I know that there was definitely content in there where they were deconstructing that, but the Christian subculture is one of those things. And we're seeing this all over the Joshua Harris and people raised kind of in my generation because it was like the late '90s, uh, early 2000s. This kind of Christianity that people lived in in that culture is obviously now beginning to crumble mm-hmm. because it's it was about certain things that you know putting on a good face and especially in the southern culture where they were so that was one of my red flags it wasn't necessarily um um about the christian faith but about christian subculture so deconstruct that all you want Mm -hmm. that that doesn't bother me um the other thing is kind of what you alluded to as well is that rhett and link are professionals at protecting themselves Mm -hmm. i mean i know one article i wrote one article that ended up going viral and i know how poisonous people were so i can imagine if you're if you are the early adopters of youtube and you are like at the the pinnacle of entertainment online you're going to get constant feedback yeah. from the world feedback. that is not going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. Feel, I was polite. Feedback. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> feedback. Uh, it's just, you're just going to get constantly shot at. Therefore he Rhett in particular was very good at putting up shields before even he knew the, the darts were going to start flying. The arrows were going to come at him. And so, uh, I've already read the argument for this. I know what some of you are going to say. Uh, don't send me any links or book recommendations. I've read this, I've done this already. And I was like, well, okay. When you're doing that, uh, you're basically carrying this posture of a lack of teachability and Mm. teachability is the road to wisdom. Uh, the road is painful. Yes, but it's not comfortable. So you can't really say, Hey, I'm off limits when it comes to um, getting advice about where to go from here because I've made my decision already. And again, he's concrete about it, but therefore he was concrete about it before. Mm. Who who am I going to believe? I believe you now, but what if you deconstruct again and go back? And that's what I thought was troublesome. Um, Yeah, what if he deconstructs his new sort of... uh, what seemed to be a more of a relativistic approach to the world, you know, this yeah. kind of igno- this hopeful agnosticism. What if he deconstructs his hopeful agnosticism, which, you yeah. know, so yeah, I think that's a good point. They, the other one that, you know, that they kind of talked about as well was like, I've read this, uh, I've done this, um, I've said this, I believed, I really did believe. But yeah, there, the absence there was, you know, when you're a Christian, when you're a genuine believer, you believe that God uh, reaches into your spiritual chest and pulls out your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It is a miracle. Mm, it is an absolute yes. miracle, and it's by grace alone. Um, when you tell me that you did all this stuff, you believed all this stuff, you said all this stuff, you acted a certain way, you shared your faith, 
if you begin to just really listen for the repeated patterns there, that is a gospel of works. That is mm. not a gospel of grace. If you believe that what God does to someone when they become a Christian is an absolute miracle, you will not be able to literally deconstruct your faith. It's just not possible. Not, it's not possible. God doesn't undo miracles. Um, and that's what I found was glaringly absent from their deconstruction, quote unquote, testimonies, is that I didn't hear um, genuine faith. And I know that like some people will, will hear me say that and be like, you pompous, arrogant, yeah, prideful, but and then that's, that's fine. But this is, is you, you don't have an issue with me. You actually have an issue with scripture. And um, I will stand on that uh, regardless of what people decide to throw at me. So, and that, yeah. that ended up mirroring a lot of my, my brother-in-law's story as well. He told mm. me all the things that he did and all the things that he said he believed and he blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, sounds a lot like works to me, not grace. Yeah, that's, it's really intriguing to me the way you just framed all of that, because when I was going through my own doubt process and even what I've called the deconstruction process, that was the difference. And, and I've told people this, and it's funny because it almost gets framed when I just talk with people in real life. They'll either perceive it like I'm making a Calvinist-Arminian argument, but I'm actually not. But I don't think I could have. I don't feel like I had a choice to disbelieve. I, I, I came up to the edge, and it was almost like cognitive dissonance because my intellectual mind had been persuaded one way, but I just... I could not have declared unbelief. I just couldn't have. Yeah. I don't even feel like I had that choice. And I think the way that you just framed that really answers why that was the case. Because I had already been through that miracle of God taking that heart of stone and putting back a heart of flesh. It's, it, you, you, you can't undo that. And, yeah. and so I think that this is such a key point. In fact, we were talking off air, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, that I love watching Sean McDowell in conversation with deconverted or deconstructed Christians because he always asks them that question. He, he pins them down, really, to, to figure out what they thought it was in the first place. What did they think the gospel was, and what was their conversion? How do they describe that? Because that is so important, and people can use a lot of words that sound right. Even Rhett's story of, I talked to Jesus, I, you know, but, but we're looking for, for what the gospel is. If they understood that, if, if that, what you just described, he took my heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh, and that transformation of becoming a follower of Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, did that happen? And that's an mm -hmm. important question to ask, even amidst the, the sort of um, distraction of all the intellectual stuff. But that's, there's a supernatural, real spiritual element to yeah. salvation that, you know, it's not just making intellectual assent to some doctrines. It's not just checking off some boxes or filling out a card. Yeah. And I think that's why we've seen in recent, um, there's some controversy about this, but we've seen some theologians push back against the sinner's prayer idea. And I understand where they're coming from because I think in some people's mind, it's like, oh, I just have to go up and say this prayer and then I'm saved, you know? Right. And it's yeah. it's not just an intellectual assent. Now, I, I'm not against the sinner's prayer. I think if somebody 
he's praying to receive Jesus and give their life to them, make him Lord, then that's legitimate if that's a real prayer. But if they're just doing it because they think they're having to check a box for some kind of metaphysical fire insurance, that's the danger. Which this brings us to chapter four of your book, which, which is so powerful, where it says, knowing only about God can lead to doubt. So I'd, I'd love for you to comment on that a little bit. Yeah, so this was uh, kind of the, the the heartbeat of the book for me um, because the, the students that I was talking to and my brother-in-law in the process, I hear a lot of uh, a reflection of, of what even Rhett and Link were talking about, that, mm. that they know a lot about God. They know the lingo. They know the Bible verses. They know the culture. They know the jokes to make fun of the culture. They know counterpoints. Mm. They know how to share their faith, quote unquote faith. Mm-hmm. They know in crew. That's what we do. We're, we're kind of known for evangelism. And, um, you know, you, I, I remember going out and sharing my faith um, when I wasn't even a Christian yet. Wow. <laughs> like I remember wow. uh, having a conversation with a friend, two friends of mine, and I had this little gospel track that the, the the four spiritual laws, Bill Bright's old school mm. yellow yellow booklet in my wallet and sharing it with these two friends of mine and that and bumbling my way through it and them just kind of scratching their heads. But like I, I learned the Christian culture, I learned the lingo, I learned everything about that. And many Christians know a ton about God, but they don't actually know God. And so the illustration I use in the book is, you know, when it comes to romantic relationships this day and age, you can you can begin to uh, know a person via their social media profiles and how to interact with them digitally. But if you know uh, what restaurant they're going to eat at this weekend, what their favorite band is, what their favorite TV show or their favorite episode of The Office is, or, you know, all these, you can know all these things about them. But if you don't know them, you don't actually know them. So if you know me via my social media profile and what I put out there um, and you think you can come and have a conversation with me and then in, you know, interject in my life and give me advice about what to do based on the, the knowledge you know about me, I'm going to be offended by that because you don't actually know who I am. You're not in relationship with me. Everything has been one-sided up until now. And so that's what I found is happening with a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They know a lot about God. They can quote Bible verses. Mm. They can make the jokes. um, They can be involved in the culture. um, But if their life doesn't reflect the fact that they are a new individual— in Christ, they have been born a second time in relationship with the living God of the universe through Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit d- does or does not dwell in them. It just doesn't. It, it's two opposite things. In in reality, spiritually speaking, they are on different planets from one another. Um, just because you know a lot about a person doesn't mean you actually know a person. And that's what I hear in a lot in these deconstruction stories is that they talk about a lot of stuff that they know about, but I'm not hearing uh, the actual relationship part, even though that they would use the language of, I had a relationship with Jesus. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, it, I'm always thinking about in this context, when Jesus talks about those who will be separated from him forever, he doesn't say, 
away from me for you never prayed the prayer. He doesn't say away from me, you didn't check the box or make intellectual assent or say the right things. He says, I never knew you. Yeah. Yep. And that's so scary. It's powerful and it's scary, isn't it? And it's sort of a wake up call, I think, to everybody who grew up in the church and grew up in Christian culture. Do you know him? And I'm, it's funny, I'm just reading through the Old Testament right now, so struck by God's relationship with us, like reading about Samuel, how God tells Samuel to go anoint David as king. And, you know, Samuel could have just said, yeah, okay. But he's like, but if I go there like this, then they're going to kill me. And God says, okay, well then do this. And there's this relationship going on. There's this yeah. conversation. There's, there's given, you know, there's, there's. God, it's clear that he's relational with us. And so that's a a good question for all of us to be examining our own hearts and asking about as we think about these types of things. I want to go toward the end of your book. You give some practical steps, just some practical advice. You know, I've talked in the past about how there are different kinds of doubts, different things that can inform your doubt. But ultimately, there's just kind of like two different kinds of doubt. There's doubt where you're really asking honest questions, this is what you alluded to in the beginning, where you're really wanting truth, you're wanting to affirm what is true. Or I've seen this a lot, especially in some of the deconstruction stories, you're really looking for justification for unbelief. You're you're either looking for answers that you will yield to whether you like them or not, or you're looking for a way out. And I think that's kind of, so I assume at this point in your book, you're talking to the person who's looking for honest answers. They really want to seek God if he's there. They want to know what the truth is about him. And so you give some practical strategies, just some practical advice. As we close out today, uh, what are some of those practical strategies that Christians can think about if they encounter doubt or maybe their loved ones encounter doubt in their Christian walk? Yeah. So at the beginning, yeah, I talk about the the the, the fact that doubt is not the same thing <laughs> as unbelief. Um, those are not the same thing. That's kind of calling the sin the same thing as temptation. They're just not the same thing. So by the time, yeah, we reached this point, I'm like, I'm a practical guy. Uh, give me some very practical steps to move forward from here instead of just kind of living in the 30,000 foot level. Um, there are a few things that I recommend, you know, God's word, God's people, and the Holy Spirit are in, incredibly uh, important in this whole process. And so if you're having doubts, I encourage you to talk about your doubts with wiser Christians who will listen to you and walk with you in your difficulty instead of trying to fix you. Because I noticed that in, in a number mm. of stories, including Rhett's. I didn't want to be that guy that someone's going to try to fix. Right. Um, so someone who will love you enough to walk with you in your mess. That's one practical step. Um, the other one was practice the habit of good orthodox reading both books and online. Um, like I said before, every question that you're asking has already been asked. Um, and there are some really great answers out there to the questions that you're asking. So read, read, read. That was with the students that I talked to that on the summer mission. It was like, have you guys read blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, this was answered nicely in Keller's reason for God. And one of the guys said, Who's Keller? And I was like, oh, gee whiz. Okay, come on. You don't know who Tim Keller is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Let's just yeah. go back to the beginning. You guys need to start reading. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's obviously very important. Flood your mind with the truth. Pursue truth instead of pursuing doubt. Uh, and then be a committed member, a regular attender of a local church. So submit yourself to the authority of a church. 
Um, I also talk about practicing thankfulness. Thankfulness and doubt don't often live in mm. the same space. So if you're thankful for the blessings that God has given you, uh, that will very quickly cram out doubt from your life. Um, as you're living with the, the people remind yourself of the gospel every single day. So like I told you my story about when I came to know Jesus and I prayed that prayer, I'm not 100% certain that I understood what the gospel was completely at that time. I do now. And it, so it almost doesn't matter if that was the point when I became a Christian. Right. But I know that I am a, a different person than I was before Jesus because of what he's done for me. And then one of the things I encourage Christians to do as well as you're doubting is to if, you, if this is a matter of life and death this is it, you know the most important thing share your faith mm. lean into the awkwardness of talking to others about what you believe and you'll you'll find very quickly just like a teacher knows the the content more than the students do you'll you'll be able to learn what the truth of the gospel is as you communicate with people who don't understand what it means to be a christian and i've found that god has often galvanized my faith in ways that it never had been before when i uh communicate what i actually believe to someone and urge them and encourage them to do the same. Um, my mouth is usually dry. My armpits are usually <laughs> wet, but it's, it's one of those things that as you move into that process, uh, I've walked away from more than one conversation, regardless of how it's been good or bad or whatever, and audibly said out loud, man, I feel so alive right now. And that's because that's what you're made for. Uh, you're never drawn in by God without being sent out by him. That's a Keller quote. Um, and then being sent out looks like a lot of different things. But I found that sharing your faith can can really do wonders for your own belief system. So, yeah, there's a few practical things. That's great. So the book is called Doubt. Do you say it doubtless or doubtless? Yeah, it's, it's a little it's a play, play on, on words. words. It's yeah. doubtless because faith is hard. It's all crammed together to make you doubtless. Nice. And so where can uh, listeners and viewers connect with you online to read more of your blog posts? And I know this isn't the only book you've worked on. So where, where can they connect with you to find out what's happening more in your life and ministry? Yeah, uh, just my website, which is shelbyabbott.com, A-B-B-O-T-T.com. Uh, I blog there, and you can see the work that I've done with uh, writing and things like that. So, yeah. Great. Well, Shelby, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Like I said, it was just a real joy to get to endorse this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So if you're watching today, be sure and pick up a copy for yourself. Pick up a copy for someone who might be experiencing some of these doubts. I've gotten emails from parents, even with uh, adult children who are going through a process of deconstruction, if you think there's even a, a, a hint of openness to, to hearing a perspective like Shelby's, grab the book. It's very, uh, the book is written in a way that is, it's not confrontive in your face. It's, it's very friendly to the doubter. And so I would, I would recommend it if somebody's going through a period of honest doubt to pick that up. So Shelby, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks, Lisa. I want to tell you about a ministry I partner with called Impact 360 Institute. So they've created life-changing experiences to help the next generation to really own their faith. So they have this holistic learning philosophy, and through that, students engage the tough questions of life, and uh, they do this with trusted advisors like J.P. Moreland, Frank Turek, John Stone Street, and more. They get grounded in biblical community, and they get to apply what they're learning by living out their faith uh, locally and also globally through servant leadership. So if you want to learn more, go to impact360.org. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed listening to or watching this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on YouTube or iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash alisachilders and take a look at some of the ways that you can come alongside us financially and with your prayers to help get the message out to more people. Have a great week.